Manchester United, I don't know how familiar you were. Years ago, when I became a fan back in the mid-90s, it was really innocuous. I was in the dorms at college playing video games, and I had to find a team that didn't suck. And because I was a, uh, my Oak Hills High School was red and black, and UC, I was a UC fan, was red and black, and, you know, the Reds had a variant. I was like, I'll pick the red and black team, which was Manchester United. And then they were one of the few teams that I could actually find on television. So basically, video game was how I became a fan of this. And I have apparel all over the place uh, in my house, like over the past two decades have collected it. And I've since indoctrinated my family toward this. So as you can see, like, you know, some of you don't even know is the guy on the right we're taking a picture with, which my daughter has absolutely no idea, was Dwight York, a prolific goal scorer in the late 1990s and early 2000s. When we were in Chicago for a game, I drug my daughter to the third floor of a bar where they were singing Man United songs that included the F-bomb. And I was just like, it's just funny, isn't it, honey? And she took this picture with a guy. And by the way, the cool thing, too, is that's a bottle of wine that we bought. So, you know, I was just like, you know, I've got my daughter in a bar where I'm buying. Because it's like a special Man United bottle of wine. It's in our house. I'll show you something. What brand is it? It's like El Diablo del Casillo. Diablo del Casillo. And at some point, it was like, here, Caitlin, hold on to this wine while we're in the bar. It was great. Why did I subject her to that? Just because it was fandom, and I probably hit a point where the Reds sucked, the Bengals sucked, and there was just something to do. And seriously, now, we plan our lives around it, to the point that they are playing right now against Chelsea, a rival, and that is DVR'd. So if anybody releases me the score to that game, you are condemned to hell. You're like, is that a joke? I don't know if I have the power to do that. But I have apparel gear. I did not wear any this morning. But it's interesting because you're like, I follow this team called United. And United is a, um, is a suffix, you know, that is added to many soccer teams. And it's funny, over in Europe you see it. There's Leeds, West Ham, Newcastle. But since soccer has become Americanized... Newer, like, American soccer teams have added that just to the end of it. There was a D.C. United. They just announced, uh, and there's Minnesota United, my Minnesotans. Yeah, they're actually becoming an MLS team. And there's also the new Atlanta team. And what's interesting is the reason it was called United originally, over 100 years ago, they would have different teams. Some would be called City. And usually United meant it was two clubs that had actually come together to form a new club, which is hilarious because in America, none of that existed. But they're like, let's just throw it on there because it makes us seem more European. Just shows you the things that we do for that. But there's something about that word united that, it, I don't know, it just, I feel like it's a feel-good word because it has within it this concept of unity. We are, in the midst of our study on Sunday mornings, in a study on the book of Ephesians, as we talk about what the Apostle Paul has been writing to this small church in modern-day Turkey over a few thousand years ago, there, there's been a lot about the development of who they are. And the one thing we talked about is that the church in Ephesus, the recipients of Ephesians, were a diverse church. They had people all over the economic strata. They had people that were diverse uh, racially from social economics, from all these different things. And yet they came together to form a group of believers. And Paul's going to really get into this in our studies this week. So if you have a Bible digitally, or you can look in the back of your pew, there's some blue Bibles there. We're, we're this morning in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, and I've got... Um, 
Jessica this morning is going to be reading for us some of these verses. If you have a blue Bible, somebody have the page number of that? 828. I'm sorry, I just like, it's not in the way for anybody but me, isn't it? I just like, feel like I'm house cleaning unnecessarily. So we're in Ephesians chapter 4. Jessica, if you'll read the first three verses of that as we get into our look this morning at Ephesians. We'll get there. Green light. Yeah, there we go. Power, you have it. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. As we talk about unity this morning, I think there's some lessons that this text really shows us. And one, to begin, is that unity starts with one. We always think of unity of many people, but really unity is dependent upon the individual deciding on whether or not they will be united with other people. I love verse 1. It's one of my favorite verses, I'm going to say, in all the Bible, because I think it's one that needs, that challenges us collectively toward this goal. And it is this. If you have chosen in your life to follow Jesus, you have been called. When we talk about faith and religion and different structures, we think that there are only certain people who have called. Usually they wear different collars or robes. Sometimes they have titles before or after their names that show how they have been called if you have a Catholic background, you, you know, maybe you've, you, you had that experience where there was the priest in the congregation. Your parents told them, the, the priest in the parish, like, you know, you have to treat him different because that's, you know, that's Father Steve and there's something special about it. The one thing that us Protestants know is that there's absolutely nothing special about the person standing in front. And that's been a funny thing with the transition of what I've had to come to grips with professionally as I've become less of a full-time pastor and then a bivocational pastor and just an elder and having these role differences that I'm, yeah, I am just a very normal, regular person. Well, I'm not normal in any sense of the words, but I am regular in the sense that there is nothing special about the calling that I have received. And this is something important that you and I need to come to grips with. All of us, if we follow Jesus have been called. Friends, you have been called. And therefore, because you've been called, you need to make sure that your life lives up to that calling. It's quite the challenge. So what we have here in verses 2 and 3 is Paul trying to show, again, our interactions with the gospel. And some of you have been with us throughout, and some of you have not. So I'm going to go through just a little of this, just as a reminder, because this is what's the beauty of what Paul writes to Ephesians, is he's trying to lay out what does it mean to be called to follow Jesus. He talks about things within the framework of the gospel, that very churchy word, right? It's the good news. And in chapter 2, we split it up into two different weeks because we had these lessons. It's important for us as followers of Jesus to realize what is the gospel? What is the good news? What's the essence of that? And the essence is very plain. It is that we sin. We do bad things. We are not perfect. We are flawed. But those flaws don't have to separate us from Jesus because through grace we have access to God. And because we have access to God, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus has done, our workmanship, the things we do need to reflect that. That's what you've been, that's the calling you received, right? And that's you living up to this calling is you trying to see what it means to live out the grace that has been given to you. We saw how that was applied too when we were looking in Ephesians chapter 2. That that both goes outwardly, how we affect other people. It goes inwardly, how you and I think and act and process things intellectually. And then finally, it's that upward relationship, true? 
It's how we relate to God. So in verses 2 and 3 right here, we are given then the toolkit, specifically verse 2, then leading on to verse 3. There's three things that Paul outlines here within the toolkit of the gospel. And the first thing is humility. What does it mean to live up to this calling? It means that you live humbly. So this is the point in the service where I would like to ask for a volunteer to stand up, and we have the microphone, to tell everybody in the church how humble you are. I need the most humble person. No takers. Because that is not how this giftedness is shown, right? And this is the thing that's important for us to see. And, And I think as we look at humility, something that's critical for us to understand is that humility is not always connected to success. Because the more that you're around successful or maybe high-earning people, you interact with them and you're like, oh, they're the people who are prideful because they have a lot on their resume that backs that up. But friends, you discover in the world that some of the most prideful people are some of the most unsuccessful there are. And the lesson within that is that it's indiscriminate, right? So what we are called is to be humble. It's very difficult to live out sometimes because sometimes you've done something good. You think, you know, there's something noteworthy that you've accomplished in your life and you want to shout it from the mountaintops because you just want somebody to know. Or you want to, you know, text somebody else hoping that they'll put it on social media so that you don't have to do it yourself. But here's the thing that happens for us, friends, is that the reason that we're called to live humbly is because there's nothing that we have done in the whole presence of what happens in the world that is really of any greater significance than what Jesus did. He was the model of humility. We follow that through. We see that we're supposed to be humble. We also see that we're supposed to be gentle. Gentleness is difficult right here too, right? Because that's not necessarily an American value that we have. We don't usually choose our leaders and say, what I really want is the most gentle person, right? And it could be very much argued that both presidential com- uh, both presidential candidates right now of their many things. I don't know if, you know, we know one isn't gentle. I'll let you pick which one. But I would even offer that probably both are not gentle because it's not a value that we see and value within our society. We might value that on an individual level, especially when we're trying to manipulate the gentle people to do what we want to do. But we don't usually embody that. I think it's one of the reasons why in sports in America, we tend to value offense over defense, right? Like, I actually watched a little, do we have any Cubs fan in the audience? We'll let you have your day. Kristen, this is your day. Enjoy it. Live it. Embody it. You're not a Cubs fan, are you? You are? Okay. So you were. So you're a cultural Cubs fan. We'll give that to you. But what's interesting is as I was watching like the tweets from last night things roll in, it was more about the people hitting the home runs than the pitchers keeping people off base. We're usually obsessed with offense. Why? Because that's aggressiveness. Aggressiveness is a cultural value that we can get behind. Gentleness is not. Because sometimes we associate gentleness with weakness. This is the paradox of the gospel, friends. Jesus was the most gentle person who has ever lived, and he accomplished more than any other person as well. And that is why we are called to be that. Coming right within this, and I love this because these are character traits of which Steve really has no access to, is patience. And I will offer you that that's one thing that I think for those of us who are younger and you can find at what point that age operates and stuff, I think patience is more difficult the younger you are. I believe as you get a little older, and this is me speaking at 40, which means I've lived it all. But there is a point that you start to become more patient because you realize how the world functions and works. And there's so many things that you can have no effect on. So therefore, you should just be patient. Like that's, that is what marathon running has taught me in the long term. Because you can't rush through it. 
Um, you, you know, it just takes a lot of time. And then similarly for all of us, there's just aspects where patience needs to be played out. For my current job, I'm renting a lot of cars, and there's a rental car uh, office in the neighborhood that I can walk to. So I prefer to go there, but the one thing I've discovered is they never have enough cars. Like, I've never gotten exactly what I need, and I've never gotten in and out, over, uh, like, under 15 minutes. So I can either choose to drive 15 minutes away or do it, or I just have to come in in a centered aspect of, I'm going to the rental car place now. And sure enough, this week I had to go in, so I'm there, and I'm standing against the wall, and there's four people in front of me, and every single one of them are angry. For no other reason than just they keep looking at their watch, and they're just pissed off, right? And it was funny, because I felt like the flipping Zen master, because I was just sitting here like this. I wasn't even on my phone, I was just like, it was like I was oblivious, caught in this other state of thought. Now, naturally, I'm not there, but I have actually, in the rental car, I have now my mentality that's going to say, ultimately, I can't do much better, so I just need to get over it and just allow my attitude to carry the day. So, I hate to give personal examples because I don't know if it's helpful, but I would say the thing that helps us to continue to be patient is to try to hardwire our minds and just say, why am I moving so fast? In a digital age, is there something that you can actually do even more quickly that is going to have any huge significance so maybe at the very least this week this week as you're working toward trying to see what how i can apply the bible maybe just breathe calm down if you're going to the bmv god bless you buckle up just take that attitude in just maybe and you know what maybe just try smiling the whole time yeah you'll look like an idiot but maybe it'll fix you internally i don't know All of this, what we're seeing right here in verse 2, which is, it ends at the end here, is that we need to then be patient and then bearing with one another in love. And love then encompasses all of these things. Now, this is important because how we view love is important to this text because some of us view love as something we embody, right? It's like, okay, I'm, I'm a loving person, you know? Like, I got a kitten, and I, you know, like, it makes me happy. Or, or, or I, like, put smiley emojis at the end of my text. Like, love is who I am, but it's less about what I embody and how I treat other people. And that's why Christianity sucks sometimes, because really it comes down to I'm saved, God has done this, and now I need to see other people in that vein, So I need to express love. So don't think of it as something that you are. Think of it as how you interact with others. And that's what's tough. And then we see in verse 3 is that's where it comes down to. Because unity, friends, takes me. It starts with one. And it takes my effort. So we always think unity is what happens when other people come around ourselves. But it's the opposite of it. It's what happens when we engage and become a part of that. This is who Jesus was That's what we're called to emulate. The Apostle Paul later says in Philippians chapter 2 that you need to value others above yourself. And that's probably the most difficult thing we'll have to live out this week, but it's a truth. Is that you need to see other people as higher and that will transform the way you see your world. Let's keep moving, Jessica, if you will. Read verses 4 through 6, please, of Ephesians 4. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I'm going to say that unity requires fellowship. And you might think that those two are synonymous. But actually, again, what it's showing us is the engagement, that unity demands the involvement of a lot of people. So again, we might be unified, but if you're unified and you're apathetic, then you're missing out on it. We have to be involved. 
I'm not a Tolkien guy. I have never read all or any of his works. I've seen movies, though, which makes me an expert on this. But the first volume of his Lord of the Rings trilogy was The Fellowship of the Ring, right? And I think one of the brilliance of Tolkien in putting together a story like this is he understood how compelling the concept of unity can be. Unity specifically of diversity, you know, and that's why I always like this little picture right here because it's awkward because you know that Peter Jackson put it in the movie just so he could have like this moment. It's, it was almost like the, the, the senior class picture, you know, or something that was included in the movie because I Googled this, you know, and got the image search and it was just this image over and over again. But there's a visual of this, of even the heights of the hobbitses and all the other people here that just shows it was like this diverse group coming through and that's what made it a compelling story is that they were united, but they were not the same. They were not the same. And by the way, there was this thing, because reading these verses right here, all week I was been singing U2's song, One, uh, which you've not heard. I was like, you know, they're one, but they're not the same. You know, I just keep singing that over and over. I, there's no way for me to fit it in, but you get that earwig for free this morning. Here is the deal, friends, is that we see Paul in the midst of all, talking of all this one and talking about bringing people together. He, he uses the metaphor of the body. And he's used this metaphor elsewhere. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, he says, just as a body, though it's one, has many parts, all of its parts come together to form one body. And that's what Jesus does for us. Jesus brings diverse thoughts and ideologies and, and backgrounds back, where, uh, back together and weaves them into something that is different and one. And that's why Paul goes over and over again. You're like, did he just, you know, accidentally continue to paste you know, the word one over and over again. No, he's trying to make a point. Something that you and I miss because this is a very Hebraic concept. The Hebraic word for one, and by the way, this is written in Greek, but Paul has a Jewish background. It just reeks of this, is the concept of achad from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. The most important verse for Jews uh, today and thousands of years ago was this verse called the Shema because the word for here in Deuteronomy 6, is the Hebrew word Shema. But it's this declaration here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The word there is this word, Ichad, which is a good guttural spitting sound for a Hebrew word. But the point behind Ichad is this idea that it comes together. Understand that one is not just a number here, but it's also a state of mind. It's a being, and this is why this is one of the most confusing verses for people ever written, because they're like, what does it mean that God is one? Is it just merely that we're not polytheistic, that we don't, you know, worship Zeus and Hermes and all these different pantheon of gods? It goes deeper in that because it's understanding God's connectedness with all of creation and with you and I, too. God is creator of everything. There's a oneness to it. And that's why in mystical religions, where they try to deal with this, there's an understanding of a connectedness that they try to say, well, that's why you don't, you know, harm animals or trees or anything because we're at one with them. This week, I'm driving down Madison Road and this lady in front of me is just stopped in the middle of the road. And you know well enough, like something's happening, but I was getting close, so I switched lanes. And, but the guy, like, some guy cut me off when I switched lanes. It was crazy. I finally saw it the last minute. What happened, there was a squirrel in the middle of the road, and the squirrel was dumb and was hanging out there, which is not a good place for a squirrel. And the guy who whipped past me just totally ran over the squirrel. Okay? So I'm just like, so I'm pulling up because I was like, you know, and so the squirrel's like 
coming off the road. So I missed it after it was there. But I just look over at the lady, like, and she's just like this. Like, she's just standing here in horror in the middle of the world, in the middle of the road. And I'm like, I, that's not the best pastoral moment where I, like, hit the brakes, get on and hug her. This lady, I'm going to assume, had never met that squirrel in, squirrel in her life. I'm just going to assume that, right? But at some point, she was horrified. Why was she horrified? And I'm sorry if you guys are like, what an ass. He's making fun of a dead squirrel. But this is, and I have a whole squirrel history, so <laughs> trust me. And I saved that squirrel. I'm glad the volume, like I emphasize that. I saved that squirrel too. So I'm not evil. But why did you kind of recoil at the thought of a story I told about a squirrel that you never even met? And that if I had never told you that story, you never would have even understood the squirrel. The reason is, is you're like, that was a living thing. And there's something there, right? Where you're just like, that's just not right. It's not something that should happen. Friends, that not rightness talks about the oneness of what God is. Is that we, like squirrel, (laughs) were created beings. Is that we were thoughtfully made. That we have an origin from somebody who you know, had thought about us, have thought about us before the creation of the world. And that is that, that's that oneness that God embodies. That's this yearning that you have in your heart. That's why you're here this morning, right? Why did you come on a beautiful fall morning into an old church building to hang out with some people? Because you have something in your heart where you know there's something here, there's something more in my life that I need and fulfillment. And that's the achad of God. That's the oneness. That is who he is. And that's why Paul's plea is for us to understand is that there's just one, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. As we get into this, the point is, it's the same point that Jesus made right before he died. And I didn't put this verse in here apparently. Um, but from John chapter 17, verse 11, the last prayer that we have on record of Jesus praying for all of us was this plea that he wanted us to be protected by the power of God's name so that my followers will be united just as God and I are one. What Jesus wants is us to be one. What keeps us from being one? What keeps us from full fellowship? I will tell you that sometimes what happens is that we focus more on our differences than what unites us. So what I want to do to further illustrate is that skip through here, going down to the, uh, the end of this part portion, Jessica, will you do me a favor and read verses 14 through 16? Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth of, in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Friends, unity yields maturation. Okay, now what we have Paul here at the beginning of verse 14 is he's getting so excited that he's mixing some metaphors, right? He's like, well, then we'll no longer be little babies. We'll no longer be little children. But he goes, or he's like, think about a boat that is on a stormy seed that's being seed that's being tossed back and forth and blown around right here. What happens with many people is they get sidetracked on the deeper theological things of God. And what he is saying is that the solution for sidetracked is unity. 
See, and we don't think about that, but, but think about this. Have you ever like, had a deep question about God and you just were like, well, I'm going to solve this myself. And you spend some time in deep thought and you develop this thing in your head. And then you talk to somebody who you respect that's deeper and you're like, hey, what about this? And they're like, that's just a horrible, horrible idea. Like maybe that hasn't happened to you. But for me, even it has happened where there's been thoughts where I was just like, okay, let's sit about to solve this. And the problem is we try to solve things sometimes individually, specifically these theological issues. And understand this, friends, when you're thinking about deep things and you're trying to solve that internally, you're going to give yourself the benefit of the doubt. True? There's only probably a few of us in here, and I don't know who you are exactly, but approach life with a thing is like, I am always wrong about everything. I am never right. And some of you probably have, you know, that self-esteem issue. And if you have that place, you know, that's why I want to point this out and say, do not listen to what I'm going to say. If that's you and that's your struggle in life, you know, that you're like, I'm never right. I, you know, I have no idea. This is not for you at all. But for all the other humans, and no, I'm joking. But for all of us who are, I guess, normal, understand this. You give yourself, you like that? I, I took two counseling classes, by the way, in seminary. And there's a reason that I didn't pursue my counseling. Because I suck at it. For a lot of us, isn't it true that the struggle is, is that we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt? So you do something that's main, mainly sinful. And you're like, well, it really isn't really that bad because I'm not a serial killer. Right? Like we find ways to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. Do you know what community, fellowship, living in unity with other people means? Is that you can't do that. Because we find clarity. And the way that the church is supposed to work then is not what we were referencing earlier, which is like some spiritual despot who knows everything and tells you exactly how you live your life. But it's about us coming together and living in community. You know what the blessings about being in a church 11 years, and this is demented, is that you've been with people through their highs and lows. You know what, when they're at their best, you know when they're at their worst. That's why, by the way, people don't want to be a part of smaller churches. Because it's like, I don't want you to know my best and worst. I just want you to think I'm always at my best. And things about being and living life with people during that time, you realize that. You know what else you realize, by the way? You realize when you're at your best and your worst. And there's a transparency there that brings about vulnerability. This is why we run from unity. True? Because we want people to know us, but we want them to know a version of us that we prefer. We would rather them not know us deeply. And that's what unity does. And this is what I love about this. So if you're looking to grow spiritually and you're thinking, how do I do that? Don't look for some sort of individual program that you can implement in your life. Like, don't worry about going to the Christian bookstore or going on Amazon and finding a book that's going to tell you how to be the better point of view. The point is to be united with other Christians. And we together, this is what I love about this, right? There is a, this is a group think right there. We always view the Bible as if it's individual. But what Paul is saying right here is, listen, when we do this, when we are unified, we act as a body. And as we do this together, we are becoming more mature in this. So again, it starts with one and it demands then that we do this together to the point that as you're living life together, we grow together. And the, what Jesus does then is weaves all of us together in some sort of demented patchwork quilt where we think the pieces are going to look ugly together. And they do. But somehow when Jesus pulls all this together, it's the most beautiful tapestry you've ever seen. Why? Not because of what I bring to the table, 
But what happens when we lay it all on the, on the rug and allow Jesus to weave this together? The key is Jesus and all of us. He pulls us together and we mature collectively. You need a church, whether it's this church, if you're a part of it, or whether it's another group of believers, just find that you need that to grow in Christ. Okay, so what does it truly mean to be united? Where, where I really wanted to land on is this. Unity means giving up liberties for greater benefits. Unity means giving up liberties for greater benefits. And we see that at work just at broader levels, right? I don't know if you are a fan of U.S. history, but we live in the United States, right? The word united unity is in our country's name. Hurrah. Kick ass. We're united. Okay. But did you ever think what it means to be united? Why we're united, but then we're united states. And by the way, I feel really bad as I, there's no Alaska, Hawaii out there. It's just, you know, I don't know. Because <laughs> they're not really united because they're far away. Like, it, it has to be touching. Don't even get me started about Puerto Rico. But, um, but here's the point about that. If you know the history of what happened with our country, is that this is still the tension that we function in daily. It's right, you know, it's like, who, who are we? And we want to chant, chant USA, USA. But then there's an inevitable state pride that rolls through. Have you ever met somebody from Texas? I mean, we can go back to the humility point and just milk that cow till it's dry because Texans are so into who they are, right, that they're all tatted up and they live that, right? Like, I have to go to Dallas in a few weeks and I'm just like, please, Jesus, help me survive Texas. We, you know, we, if you're from Cincinnati, if you're local, you don't really have this as much because that's the thing is that a lot of us Cincinnati's, we don't even view ourselves as Ohioans half the time, right? Like, you're like, yeah, I guess I'm from Ohio, but really I'm from Cincinnati. And then there's this whole Northern Kentucky, Southeast Indiana. Like, we are just, we're mental. But if you think about it, why is there this pride? Because there's an identity that rolls to it. But this is what happens. Those borders evaporate when we become who we are, united. And that is actually from a, uh, a political perspective, what happened with the unity of this country, right? We became united, and in doing so, you sacrifice individual liberties for greater benefits. So we're looking at next year going to see our friends in Europe, and when we go, I'm going to be able to get a passport. I don't have to worry about the, that, that country me, about me coming in because they want to be like, wait, you're from Ohio? Well, you know, who are they? No, they're going to be like, that's a USA passport that's going to get you here. There's, there, there are benefits that help me. And from a spiritual way, it's the unity of all these pieces coming together that helps us contemplate or helps us understand that when we are joined, we can accomplish much. And that's a concept that we Americans are used to, but it's what we Christians need to. But the idea for us to contemplate individually as we come together is going to be this. How do you sacrifice self for the benefit of others? let that linger just so that we dwell on that just a little bit right now and maybe this week personally how do you sacrifice self for the benefit of others and by the way when we talk about this and i've noticed this through ephesians it's interesting because as our church continues to transition and do stuff i i want to kind of let that lens you know set on okay what does it mean for echo church to do that but that's not that's never been what we've been about within this like when we talk about unity and coming together those of us in this body do that just because we see the value in this fellowship but 
even on a personal level, how are you sacrificing self for the benefit of others? Because if you're dismayed that you're not feeling unity, is that because you, are, you have a poor view of what it means to be united? Are you viewing that with what other people should bring to get together to the table when the most important thing is what do you bring to the table? Thank God, friends, that Jesus didn't view it that way. I'm so thankful that Jesus didn't come to this earth and just be like, okay, guys, this is what you have to do. You need to do it. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus came in, lived life perfectly, and said, hey, by the way, even though I've done this better than any of you, in humility I'm going to give my life up for you. Because unity means sacrificing self for the benefit of others. How are you doing that? I love this psalm, chapter 133. There was a hokey song that was written when I was growing up. But how good and pleasant it is when we live together in unity. Doesn't mean we don't fight. Doesn't mean we are perfect. Oh, we are far from perfect. But the redemption of that is Jesus. And when we come together as a body of believers, the way that we see that culminate is within a time of communion. And many of us are familiar with communion. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've probably had it. If you're not outside, we're going to have this time. And uh, uh, what we followers of Jesus are going to do, we're going to take a time just to stop and contemplate this thought. Who was Jesus? What did he mean to my life? When I take communion, I'm remembering the worst part of his life, his death. How he was beaten and bruised. How he hung on a tree. How his blood flowed, all because of my sin. But the concept of communion, and if you know this from the etymology of the word, there's the word community that uh, traces its root back to the same thing. Communion isn't about an individual. It's not like I have to take this to cleanse my inner self here. Actually, communion is about us. Because it's what we do to remember. Friends, we have collective memory that we weave together. It's how we view our lives through Christ. So we're going to have this time of communion. I'm going to pray. We're going to pass around the trays, the emblems. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to grab a piece of bread, to grab a cup, hold on to it. And when you're ready, just to remember Jesus, his sacrifice, and how he weaves us together into a beautiful tapestry. I'm going to pray. And we'll commune. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. I thank you for this concept of unity, Father, which I think a lot of us see empowering. But man, some of us just do not feel anywhere united. Some of us feel like outcasts and outliers. We don't understand how anybody could see us for who we aren't. But we know, Father, that you saw us that way and you sent Jesus to go out and pursue that lost sheep. To bring us back together. And I would ask a prayer for us, Father, just that um, as we collectively look at that, that we might be includers because that's your mission here on earth. And that's what you did when you died on the cross. You stretched out your arms. You offered all for us so that you might later embrace us in eternity. And we give thanks for you today. We thank you for this bread, which reminds us of the body of Jesus that was beaten and bruised and abused and hung on a tree. We thank you for this cup that represents the blood that flowed. As we consume this, Father, help us to remember how you brought us back together. And for all this, we praise you as we remember in his name. Amen.